Carl McCann has preached for the congregation in Fruitvale, Texas. You got that right, 33 years. As a matter of fact, he got out of school of preaching in 1990 from Brown Trail, where he studied under Johnny Ramsey, among others. And he began that work, and he is still there. If you know Carl McCann, you treasure him. And if you don't know him and have only heard a little bit about him, you will treasure him by the time the gospel meeting is over. You really will. He works as an instructor with the Southwest School of Preaching. Matter of fact, just finished spent, uh, spending time there teaching a couple of classes. He's also on the board of the House of Recovery and Hope in Mount Vernon, Texas, which we are blessed to help support. And they do some great work. We're thankful for that. Fruitvale, Texas, I, I may need to tell you where that is. It's near Canton. It's near Canton, East Texas. Carl didn't know it, but I talked with several members of his family prior to his coming because I've known Carl a long time. But I asked his family to describe him. Carl's been married for 44 years to his wife, Susan. Here are three ways she described her husband. Studious. I think we'll all see that in just a few moments. Outgoing. Outgoing. Working at uh, Camp Ida, working with the congregation for 33 years, working at the House of Recovery and Hope in Mount Vernon. It says something about him being a busy fellow and outgoing and teaching at Southwest. She said that he's studious and outgoing and a word that keeps coming up, faithful. Married for 44 years to the same woman. Preaching for 33 plus years for the same congregation. It's rare to find someone where so much of his life speaks of his trustworthiness, loyalty, and dependability. Carl, come and preach a great God to us. We know you will. Well, I've got some correcting to do when I get home. <laughs> I've been... Well, I've been thoroughly sabotaged. No, I am thankful for the uh, great introduction that Brother Mike gave to me. I'm grateful to be here with you. I have, uh, as I've shared with Mike and Cherie last night, I've come through Midland, Texas three times in my life. And this makes the third time. And so I was here a few years ago. We stopped on our way to El Paso. And you may be thinking, why go to El Paso? 
Well, there's a young lady that we helped to raise that is now a captain in the highway patrol stationed in El Paso, Texas, and she is, we had her first child, now she's moved on and had three children, so we were there to see that first child that she had, and so we stopped here, worshiped with all of you, and continued on to El Paso. And if I had known how far it was from Midland to El Paso in a practical sense, I might have turned around and went back home. It's a long ways to El Paso. So as we uh, are blessed to be here this morning, I'm certainly indebted to the relationship I've had with the Vestals and also the Oars. Wonderful people, those that have been a part of my life for uh, several years. I think of the Fruitvale Congregation, and Mike mentioned I've been there 33 years, and I have to say this every time. Folks, it speaks more highly of them than it does me. Who would keep a preacher around for 33 years? Well, hopefully Midland will keep Mike Vestal around for 33 years. But they have uh, been a blessing to me. And I pray in some way I've been a blessing to them. But we're not here to talk about me this morning or this week. As we delve into our subject this morning, as Mike mentioned, I was a student at the Brown Trail School of Preaching. And I can remember very vividly, it is 1988, I have arrived at the Brown Trail School of Preaching. The reason it is ingrained in my mind is, number one, I'm driving a 1969 Volkswagen Beetle from Decatur, Texas to Fort Worth, Texas. First day of school, I'm nervous, anxious, excited. I'm driving down 287 and the right wheel falls off of the Volkswagen. Folks, this is before the age of cell phones. This is before the age of businesses between Decatur, Texas and Fort Worth. There was one convenience store and I'm about six or seven miles from that store. The rest of it is farmland. A cow's not going to help me. I travel to the grocery store, tie, dress clothes. I arrive. I know I'm going to be late for school because I have to wake my wife up. She comes and we swap cars. She has to get her mother up to come follow her. And then a man came and towed the Volkswagen home during that day. So I finally get to Brown Trail, and this is the first thing that the instructor said to me and the rest of my class. If you can do anything else than preach, go do it. I think I understand the sentiment behind that. He understood the privilege that it is to preach. He understood the power that is found within the Word of God to change the hearts and the lives and the eternal destinies of men and women. 
But he also knows that with preaching, oftentimes there will come difficulties, there will come trials, there will come with that afflictions. And so he was cautioning us that preaching at times can be extremely difficult. Now through my 30 plus years of preaching, I've not really experienced that. The brethren in the churches of Christ have been an absolute blessing to me. Now we've had our moments, but they are fleeting. But there can be challenging times in preaching. But let me let us all in on a little bit of a secret. There can be challenging times in living the Christian life. Not just preaching. Sometimes it is extremely hard to be faithful to God. Life brings so many things at us in such a fast pace that oftentimes we find ourselves just sort of reeling and recoiling and trying to regain our balance. Sometimes being a Christian can be extremely difficult. And that's why Paul would say to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 12, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. I need to realize that there is a foe out there there is indeed a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 8. And so while we think about living for God in a godless society, this week we're not going to travel all of the avenues and ways in which the world has presented itself to us as being unmindful, unaware, unconcerned about the God of heaven. I pray this week that by the time we are done that you will ardently say, yes, the devil is a powerful being, but my God is more powerful. And I can go to heaven. I can be among all the redeemed of all of the ages. So now by way of further introduction, go with me to the book of Genesis, if you will. Because folks, the concept that we're talking about seems like it's always been in the world in which we live. When you go to the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis, we are opening up to a very familiar account of Noah, the building of the ark, the eventual flood, and the destruction of the entire world other than the eight folks who were saved in the ark. But notice, if you will, that the thoughts and the intents of man's heart were evil continually. And God was sorry that he had even made man. And then verse 8. 
In my opinion, I think these are two of the most understated words in the entirety of the Bible. But Noah. Now I'll give you my understanding of Genesis 6. God from His heavenly realm is looking down upon His creation. Much as He does what? Today. He's looking upon His creation. He's viewing things and all He sees is evil, evil, evil. Oh. But Noah. Now I've not been in your fair city more than 24 hours. You know this city more than I do. You know it much better than I do. And I pray that as God looks down upon the city of Midland, Texas, that as He's looking and He's viewing and observing all the things that are taking place in Midland, that your name pops up in the vision of God. As he is viewing things and surveying things and taking into account of things, he's going along and then he says, but Adam. But Mike. But Karen. He's viewing this world and all of its wickedness and all of its Horrible things that just exist daily. And yet here rises, but insert your name. In our common vernacular, when God is surveying the world, when He comes to you, does He stop dead in His tracks? And He says, but. You have found what? Grace. Favor in the eyes of the Lord. If you continue to look through the sixth chapter of Genesis, and you're going to see that Noah does everything that God tells him to do. In that brief thought about Noah, now fast forward to Leviticus chapter 11. Because when you arrive at Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 44, the text says, Be ye holy. Be ye holy. Peter, as he picks up this same refrain over in the book of Peter, he's going to say, Be ye holy as I am what? Holy. So now as we think about Noah in Genesis chapter 6 and just trying to tie these together in a very general way, we have Noah in Genesis chapter 6 who stood out to God. God, Noah was not among that number whose thoughts and intents of heart was only evil continually. Noah stood out to God and he was then set apart in the mind of God as being one who is striving to be holy. Then you fast forward on to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30 and now as Moses is continuing to write he says now speaking for God as he is writing he says 
I have set before you today what two things? Life and death. Choose life that you might live. See, folks, every day we wake up, we have a choice to make. What am I going to do today? What am I going to do today that's going to honor God? What am I going to do today that's going to set me apart from the rest of the world, not just for being set apart's sake, but what am I going to do to show that I am striving to live godly in an ungodly world? We all have to make choices. We all have to consider what we're going to do. But that's always been the case. You remember when Joshua was closing out the book of Joshua? And he says in Joshua 24, 15, Choose you, what, this day, whom you're going to serve? Well, what about 1 Kings 18 and verse 21? How long will you falter or heart between, fault, halt between two opinions? If God be God, then what? Serve Him. If Baal is God, then serve Him. Make a choice. Or what about Matthew 6, 24? The Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, No man can serve two masters. He'll love one, hate the other. He'll hold to one, he'll despise the other. Now folks, what Jesus stated in that particular verse is universal. It doesn't matter what your educational status is. It doesn't matter what your financial status is. It doesn't matter anything about your life. The point is, you can't serve two masters. That's why we have to choose. And that's a daily choice we have to make. Because the day I do not get up and make a decision that today I'm going to serve God, the devil is where? Couched at the door. And he's waiting. So as we think about living godly in a godless world, and it is commanded, our text this morning will be Titus 2, Chapters 11, verses 11 through 15. Titus 2, 11 through 15. And you'll notice in verse 11 that we are commanded to live godly because the grace of God has appeared. Secondly, we're going to notice that the grace of God, it is now going to, or the education of grace, I should say, is that which is going to demand we live a godly life. The reward of grace is that which is going to demand we live a godly life. The focus of grace is going to demand that we live a godly life. And then we'll get to the end in verse 15 and you'll see where these things are commanded. These things speak with all authority. These are things that we are to consider. So go with me to Titus 2, 11 through 14. The text reads, For the grace of God, which bringeth salvation, has appeared unto all men. Titus 2, 11. 
The grace of God which bringeth salvation has appeared unto all men. So the grace of God has appeared. Now if you go back up to Titus chapter 2 and verse 1 and you note, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Now Titus engages in this instructions where he's talking to the older men, the older women, the younger men, the younger women, and he's addressing all of these particular matters. And then he gets to verse 11. Now for, and based on everything that he has said previously, for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God is tied to the doctrine of God that you find in Titus chapter 2 and verse number 1. That's why Paul would tell the Ephesian elders as he had called them to him on the island. And he says, now, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are redeemed. When we think about the grace of God, it is that which has appeared. It has appeared in the life of Jesus. As He came in His incarnation, He came and He revealed Himself to us. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. We think about the fact that Christ has come and He has revealed God to us. You remember when Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse number 9, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So the grace of God has appeared in His Son, Jesus. But we think about Jesus, what did He do? In Luke chapter 1 and verse 79, this is an account where John the Baptist has been born. His father, you remember he could not speak. And then once John was born, then what are you going to name him? And he finally said, we're going to name him John. Well, then Zacharias starts into this long description in this long explanation of things. And when you get to Luke 179, he says this. And he says now that he is going to bring light to those who are in the shadow of death. Those who are in darkness. He's going to bring light to them. Now folks, scripturally, light and dark, that represents light, truth, goodness. Dark, darkness represents that which is wicked, things we ought to avoid. He says now he's going to bring light and he's going to bring truth to those who are in darkness and those who are in the shadows. These things are going to be brought to light. Now, when you think about that statement in Luke 1, then you go to John chapter 1, and John says, I'm not the light. I'm not the true light. I've come to do what? Bear witness of the light. We think about what Zacharias is stating there in Luke chapter 1. And then John, as he deflects that away from himself and he points the spotlight on Jesus, then Jesus would say, I am the light of the world. John 8 and verse 12. 
So now Jesus is the appearance and is the revelation of God's grace unto man. God's grace has appeared. It is a reality. But not only do we have the appearance of grace in Titus chapter 2 and verse number 11, but grace educates us. Folks, when you look at Titus 2 and verse 12, for the grace of God which bringeth salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. So God's grace has appeared in His Son. It's been made available to us, our understanding and knowledge of it. I think it might be interesting before we launch into verse 12 that realize that the appearing of God's grace is a salvation issue. The grace of God which brings what? Salvation. It's a salvation issue. That's why Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2 on two occasions. We are saved by what? Grace. Now not grace alone, but we're saved by grace. And we're saved by grace through what? Faith. So as we think about what is being discussed, grace is a salvation issue. And now it teaches us, it educates us to deny ungodliness. Ungodliness is the aspect, the thought wherein mankind just has no idea of serving God. God is away from their mindset completely. They're not thinking about God at all. Folks, we run into individuals at the home of recovery. They come into the home of recovery and you bring up God to them and some of them look at you like you've grown a third eyeball. They come in in the worst shape I could ever imagine a human being ever being in. They come in, they're addicted to alcohol, they're addicted to drugs of various shapes, forms, and sizes. I have been there teaching classes and men have showed up that first day and I'm usually there on a Thursday night and they've been sitting there on the couch and they've been standing there or sitting there looking at me and I'm speaking and I know I can be kind of boring but I've never had anybody just fall flat over. That's the state they're in. They're wore out physically. They have abused their bodies to degrees and ways in which we cannot, we cannot even possibly imagine and thank God for that. But then more importantly, they have abused themselves spiritually to the point where they think there's no return. Because once you bring them to a knowledge of God, some sort of an understanding of God, then they realize how far, far, far away they were. Now folks, keep that in mind when we think about God's grace has appeared. And it teaches us to deny 
ungodliness. Refuse ungodliness. I'm not going to live in a way that does not honor and recognize my God. And I'm not going to live in such a way as I think about teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Is the lust of the flesh powerful? We'd be absolutely crazy to say it's not. If there was no pleasure in sin, why would we do it? As Hebrew writer tells us about Moses, he chose rather to suffer ill treatment with the children of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. There's pleasure in sin. There's enjoyment in sin. Now its payday is horrible. But in the moment, there's joy and there's pleasure there. And we've got to so decide and choose, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to do that any longer. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to deny those things, the pleasures of sin. But when he talks about I'm going to deny ungodliness and the worldly lust, not only am I taught to deny things or to refuse things, but he says now you add these things to your life. You are to add. As you look at verse 12, as we're talking about education, we are to add to these things that are going to be beneficial to us. And we are to live soberly, righteously, and godly. The word soberly appears several times in the second chapter of the book of Titus. If you go to chapter verse 2, I should say, He says that the older men be sober. He talks about the fact that the uh, older women are to be sober-minded. Verse 6, the younger men are to be sober-minded. To be sober-minded means to be clear. To have no things that would cloud one's mind or one's decision-making process. He says, now, you be sober. Right thinking. As one commentator said, you be sober-minded and you'll be right thinking with yourself. With yourself. But you are to be sober. You are to be one that is known by your righteousness. Righteously living. You're in a right standing with God. Doing those things that are pleasing in God's sight. And then thirdly, as we look at this 12th verse, and you are to be godly in this present age. Now go with me very quickly. Flip back to 2 Timothy chapter 1. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse number 10. Second Timothy chapter 1, let's start in verse 8, verse 8. He says, therefore do not be ashamed 
of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Now don't leave this thought of grace leave us, uh, laying there in verse number 9. Because we have his own purpose and grace which was given to us before time began in whom? In Christ Jesus. Now verse number 10. But has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher for the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffered these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. As Paul is writing to Timothy and encouraging Timothy, and it's a marvelous letter, Paul says, I know whom I have committed myself to. And as we think about the education of grace, it teaches us to deny ungodliness, worldly lust, live soberly, righteously, and godly, in this present age, because now we have a focus. Focus. Have any of you ever lost focus? If you want me to, if you haven't experienced this, if you've ever had uh, LASIK surgery, then I don't, I don't need to talk to you. But if you haven't, get with me. I can give you a vivid description of losing your focus. LASIK surgery is absolutely amazing. My wonderful wife that Brother Mike mentioned, who I can't wait to call and say, what's the idea of giving away my secret? She's sitting in the lobby. We come into the place I'm having my LASIK procedure done, and there's a TV. And there's some program showing. I go back to the back to have my procedure done, and lo and behold, guess who pops up on that screen? Me. She sits out in the lobby and watches the entire procedure. And she, I, when I came out, she said, Carl McCann, if you'd have sat where I sat, you'd have never had that done. But I lost focus. Folks, when they did that little laser cut and flipped that flap of skin back, I lost focus. And I could hear the nurse, keep your eye on the, on the light. Keep your eye on the light. Keep your eye on the light. Because then I heard the laser machine doing its work. I couldn't see that light, not clearly. 
but I didn't take my eye off of it. And then, seizure's over, lay that little flap of skin back over. I could see like a 10-year-old. Folks, I want you to make a spiritual analogy of that. When we lose our focus on God, everything in our life becomes blurred. And if we could see what we're really doing to ourselves, we would not be where we are. Notice our focus, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Folks, I mentioned sometimes that being a Christian can be challenging, difficult, and yea, even downright hard. but we dare not lose our focus. The Hebrew writer tells us that we have a great cloud of witnesses that are encouraging us. Hebrews chapter 12. They're encouraging us to remain faithful, to remain devoted, to keep our focus upon God. Keep our focus upon Jesus Christ. And we are to be looking unto Him because He is the author and the finisher of our faith. We're looking unto Him. And the grace of God which has appeared, the grace of God which educates us, encourages us to stay focused. Focused. And as we think about, we are looking. I want you to remember with me in your mind as the disciples are now with Jesus. He has been resurrected from the grave. He has traveled in and out amongst them for some 40 days. We now find ourselves in Acts chapter 1. His disciples are still confused. Lord, will you at this time do what? Establish the kingdom, an earthly kingdom. Jesus says that's not, that's not for you to know or to worry about. But you're going to be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, under the uttermost parts of the world. That's what you need to get focused upon. And then... He begins to ascend. And I would encourage you to read those words in that account where it talks about them looking and seeing and gazing. And every one of those words intensifies their activity. It hones their focus as they saw him ascend 
I can imagine them, folks, I can just imagine them as they were standing there and they're looking up and he starts to get a little bit foggy and they try to move and get a better position to see him a little bit longer and they're gazing and they're gazing and finally he gets plumb out of sight going back through the clouds and he returns to the Ancient of Days. But then there's a tap. There's an angel standing there. And that angel says, why are you standing here looking up into heaven? Do you not know? Now church, let me ask you. Do you not know that as you saw Jesus ascend? And how do we see that? By an eye of faith. I was not there. But I trust that it happened. And I have my own picture of how that all took place. But I know he ascended. And I know this. As surely as he went up into heaven. Someday he is going to return. And every eye will see him. And when that day occurs, whose side do you want to be on? The God-loving, God-fearing, God-serving side or the side that has no desire to please God whatsoever? Because that's the crux of living godly in an ungodly world. Jesus is not done. He's in heaven now doing what? Preparing a place for you and for me. He's working. And he looks down and he says, Christian, work. For the day is coming, the hour is coming, when no man can what? Work. And as I think about verse number 14, what's the reward? We have the appearance of grace. We have the education of grace. We have the focus of grace. Now what's the reward of grace that we are to understand here in this context. Verse 14, he says, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us. Here's the first thing. We have been redeemed. I remember, I don't know how many years ago it was. Brother Mike Vestal was at Fruitvale holding a gospel meeting. And we sang a song. Send the light. Send the light. Send the light. And Brother Mike, he made a point as we sang that song. And you're all fully aware of Brother Mike and his emphasis on the last letters of a word. 
And the statement he made was this. I don't want to be guilty of sending a lie. It's not send a lie. It's send the what? Send the light. Light. Now notice, we've been redeemed. We have been redeemed. And now, notice, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us. Redemption is that which is ours. And redemption is tied to what overriding subject? The grace of Almighty God and the sacrifice of his Son. Think of this. For though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Folks, what did I leave out of that first part of 2 Corinthians 8 9? The opening words of 2 Corinthians 8 9 are this For you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty, might be made what? Rich. Folks, when we think about redemption, we can't separate that from the grace of God. And now we have understood that we have been redeemed from every lawless deed. We have not only redemption, we have purification. And all of that is tied to the grace of God. Purification. To be pure. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart. Now He starts that very thought of the Beatitudes out by, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 6. But then he drops down to the pure, P-U-R-E, pure in heart. Folks, I want to be pure in heart. I want to have a heart that is pure and holy and thinking upon those things which are God-honoring, fellow man-helping, I want to think on those things. Is that not what Paul encouraged us to do in the book of Philippians chapter 4? If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, then what? Think on these things. Think on things that are going to lead your mind toward purity and holiness. Because we have been redeemed and we have been purified And then we notice thirdly, folks, we have now also been identified. Notice at the end of verse number 14, he says, You are his own special people, zealous for good works. We've been identified. We've been identified as to who we are, to whom we belong, and what I'm looking for. And all of this is because of the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared unto all men. 
And all of this has been commanded. Verse 15, he says, Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one despise you or disregard you. This is an authoritative section of Scripture. And Paul is reminding Titus, as he's on that island setting in order things that are lacking. And we get the description of the Cretans. And they were slow bellies and the description is not very good. And he says, don't let anyone despise you. Don't let anyone do that. You teach them with authority. You teach them and exhort them and command them to adhere to these things concerning the grace of God and its appearing. In closing, I want to remind you who you are. In 1988, the Statler brothers wrote a song, and I think out of all the songs the Statler brothers ever sang, this might be one of my most favorite ones. And it's entitled, More Than a Name on a Wall. The song is about a mother who comes to the Vietnam Wall, I'm assuming. And she comes and she has paper and a pencil. If any of you have ever done this, you know what she's doing. She's putting that paper up and she's highlighting the letters and the name of her son would come through on the piece of paper. I've done this myself. So she's talking about in the song, talks about all that she has left is the memories, the memories and all the things that the son went through. But then the chorus says, please God tell him He's more than a name on a wall. Now folks, I want to address all of you for just a, a moment. For those of you who are members of the Lord's Church here at Westside, you are more than a name on a membership roll. You are a child of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we are His, what? Children. Folks, you are a child of God. You are a member of the Lord's body, the church. And you will never occupy a more honorable place in your entire life. And we are blessed beyond measure. And while this world will try to kick us, while this world will try to beat us down, while this world will try to keep us from doing and being everything we ought to do and be, God says, remember who you are.
Remember where you're headed. Folks, this world is what? Not our home. I'm here for a little while, and then I'm gone. And that's true of every one of us. And folks, as we strive with every ounce of our being to live godly in a godless world, remember, as Paul wrote, by the grace of God, I am. By the grace of God, you understand the appearing of Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, you have been educated in what to avoid and what to be involved and engage yourself in. By the grace of God, you have a focus. And by the grace of God, you have a reward that awaits you. So folks, as we think about living godless, godly in a godless world, God has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. So if you're in our audience this morning and you are not a New Testament Christian and that's your desire and you know that I need to obey the gospel, then notice this. For by grace you have been saved. Grace is the means of salvation. It is through our obedience to God's plan. As God has told us, you must hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized and have your sins washed away and I will add you to my church. That's God's plan. That's God's promise. So if you're in the audience this morning and that's what you need to do, then realize you will be saved by grace through your faith. Maybe you're in the audience this morning as a Christian. Perhaps you've lost focus. Perhaps the world is winning when it ought not be. Perhaps you've forgotten about the power that's at our disposal. Whatever your need might be, if you need to repent of sins or if you need to obey the gospel, we have a song of invitation that is chosen to help encourage you to do that very thing to obey the gospel, or to be right with your God. Heavens, folks, there's a song that I love to sing, and it is, Heaven Holds All to Me. I pray that that describes each and every one of us this morning as we stand and as we sing.